Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. In 1996, Coca-Cola was looking for a new campaign to market their clear soda, Sprite. They wanted something hip, something fresh, something that would appeal to the younger generation. The result was ads with athletes like LeBron James doing some amazing act of athleticism and then turning to the camera Sprite in hand and stating the motto of the campaign, Obey Your Thirst. What's interesting is that this motto was actually taken from a speech by then-Governor Ronald Reagan to a group of sweltering hot Boy Scouts 25 years before this ad campaign was born. As Governor Reagan ended his speech on that scorching hot Southern California day, he paused to take a drink of ice-cold water. Then he turned back to the Boy Scouts, who were dripping with sweat under the relentless heat of the sun, and said, Now I've spoken to you on a number of different topics today, but if you are to remember one thing, And only one thing. I want it to be this. Speeches are nothing. Thirst is everything. Always remember to obey your thirst. No matter who we are or what we do, thirst is something we deal with every day of our lives. It's dehydration, not starvation, that kills wanderers in the desert. And some speculate that thirst is the most terrible of all human sufferings. The difficult reality is that in some places of our world, people are literally dying of thirst. We grieve for them, and we need to do what we can to help them. But in this country, and particularly in this community, we seldom, if ever, struggle with that kind of physical thirst. But we do struggle with another kind of thirst. The thirst, the longings and yearnings in our souls. When we are physically thirsty, all we can think about is getting a cool, refreshing drink of water. When our souls are thirsty, we are consumed with finding something to refresh them. If we crave affirmation and love, we have a tendency to go from one person to the next. If we crave stuff, we always want more money, more material possessions, believing that the next acquisition will fill that empty feeling. If we crave recognition, we will seek one more title after our name, one more job advancement, believing that then we will truly be happy and content. 
The problem is that the measuring stick just gets longer and longer. So our thirst is never quenched because none of these things truly speak to our deepest spiritual longing, our longing for God. It is this deep spiritual thirst that becomes evident in the story that we just read about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's about 12 noon, and Jesus and his disciples are hot and tired from their journey. While the disciples go for food, Jesus sits at Jacob's well to rest and wait for them to return. Because it's the hottest time of the day, there is no one else there. Going to the well is typically a social time for women. They go together, sharing news of the village and of their lives, And they meet there during the coolest parts of the day, certainly not noon. But it's at noon, as the hot desert sun beats down, when this one lone woman comes to draw her water. Perhaps she's alone in order to avoid the other women and what they may say to her. Life has to be difficult for her with her marriages and divorces and now living with a man to whom she's not married. She's probably an outcast in her village. She keeps to herself, her gaze focused on the ground before her, avoiding eye contact with others in order to evade their glaring looks of disapproval their whispers and comments about who she is and what she has done. We all probably know someone like this woman. Maybe you see something of yourself in her. When we're hurt or deeply wounded by others, we begin to withdraw into ourselves to protect what little dignity we have left. Of course, sometimes this hurt causes us to overcompensate. We have to be the life of the party, the center of attention, as we are desperately seeking others' approval. Or we fill our lives so full of activities and commitments so that we don't have time to think about or deal with the pain. But whatever she is feeling or facing, because she has come to draw her water at noon, She should be the only one there. Imagine her surprise when she sees someone else at the well. Coming closer, she sees a man dressed in the long white robe of a rabbi. Immediately, she knows that he's a Jew and that he's a teacher of the law. Now, because of who he is, she's thinking, This isn't going to be a pleasant encounter. She knows that Jewish men don't speak to women in public. Married men don't even speak to their wives in public. Some Pharisees are called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because when they see a woman in public, they close their eyes. You'd be bruised and bleeding too if you went around with your eyes closed. So... There may be a man present, but this will be a silent meeting at the well, not only because she's a woman, 
but also because she's a Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans because they're half Jew and half Gentile, and they worship at a temple that rivals the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So she's stunned when she realizes that he is speaking to her. But she soon begins to discover that Jesus is different from all of the other Pharisees and rabbis when he asks her for a drink. She responds, how can you ask me for a drink, implying I'm a woman and a Samaritan. But it's Jesus' request for a drink of water which leads to a conversation that transforms this woman's life. He offers her living water which she finds appealing as she will no longer have to make these daily dreaded journeys to the well. It's easy to understand how she misunderstood what Jesus is saying, as living water is fresh, moving water. It flows and is precious and valued because there's a constant supply. As opposed to a well which is dug by hand so that the water gathers and is stagnant, and there's always a fear that it could run dry. Even though she doesn't understand all that Jesus is saying, he continues talking with her about the living water. He talks with her about her life, past and present, about the fact that worship is more the attitude of our hearts than where we worship, until he finally tells her, I am the Christ something he has not disclosed to anyone else so clearly. He now has her complete attention. She's shocked and intrigued as he talks about her life without a tone of judgment or condemnation. She begins to realize that she can't hide from him because he knows her. He really knows her, yet he is kind, loving, and compassionate towards her. We don't know what happened in those five marriages or what happened to her five husbands, but we do know that in those days, a man could divorce his wife for being a bad cook, for not bearing sons, or just about anything that displeases him. But whatever happened, for her to suffer the loss or rejection five times must be extremely painful. We can only imagine her sense of failure, her low self-esteem, and her fear of what is ahead because it was almost impossible for a single woman to survive in the first century without the support of a man. Because of her last ex-husband, she may have found herself forced to live with a man to whom she was not married. All of us know the pain of rejection. Even children know the sting of rejection, of not being included in the playground games or invited to the party that everyone else is attending. The question is, 
When we face the thirst that rejection creates, how do we handle it? It's easy to believe that the acceptance, admiration, and love of others will quench our thirst, or that the busyness in our lives or our work will fill our painful loneliness. But these are just inferior substitutes that can never quench our real thirst, yet we keep drinking them, don't we? In the second church West pastored, it wasn't long after we arrived that I discovered that the fact that I could not play the piano or the organ was a real problem for some of the church members. There were little comments here or there, and one woman following a Sunday morning worship service abruptly informed me that I needed to begin lessons immediately. Well, I didn't. And even though I tried to act like it didn't bother me, it did. There was one young couple in particular who were very vocal against me not playing the piano and seemingly everything else. Nothing I did was right or seemed to please them, and they went out of their way to let me and others know it. So I thought, if only I can gain their approval, things will be better. One evening, Wes came home from a church board meeting with a request from the board members. Would I be willing to lead vacation Bible school that summer? I was excited about this ministry opportunity, but as I threw myself into the planning, preparing, and working on Bible school, I quickly became aware of the fact that I secretly hoped that Vacation Bible School would be a real success so that this couple would see that even though I didn't play the piano or organ, there were other things I could do and do well. So... We recruited volunteers, we built sets and painted them, decorated classrooms, constructed a float promoting our Bible school for the annual citywide Aquafest. We planned games, we planned crafts and centers that included guest speakers and special projects like building bricks and weaving. Honestly, it just makes me tired even thinking and talking about it. But all of the hard work paid off. That week of Vacation Bible School was a huge success with a record number of children attending and hearing the gospel message. Following the closing program on Sunday morning, that young couple sought me out to tell me how great they thought the week of Bible School was, how impressed they were with all I had done, and that they hoped I would do it again. At first, I was excited about their support and appreciation because I finally had their approval. But as the day wore on, I realized what they had to say was fine, but it didn't really do what I thought it would. Many lives were touched and transformed during that week of Bible school. Perhaps no one's more than mine.
I began to realize a truth I knew but had forgotten. God and God alone can quench my inner thirst with his living water, which is exactly what he desires for all of us. In order to help us understand this image of living water, Jesus uses a vivid word picture when he says, welling up. It's a vigorous springing up. It's jumping up. This Greek verb is used in Acts 3.8 and in Acts 14.10 when people were healed and they jumped to their feet with joy. When we have this living water springing up, jumping up within us, there's purpose and meaning to our lives. We live with an inner joy and peace, with a sense of contentment and hope, even in the midst of difficulties and trials, because we're experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in our innermost beings. Because we've drunk the living water Jesus offers, our thirst is quenched, our spiritual lives are nourished, and we are in right relationship with God. Some of you here this morning have never tasted the living water of Jesus. You've never had your inner thirst quenched, and today may be the day to do so. But many of us have. We have had that first taste. Yet when we're most honest with ourselves, we know that we don't have that spring or fountain jumping up within us. It's not the same as it once was. So we have to ask, why? Why isn't the fountain of Christ bubbling up, jumping up within us? We know the problem isn't the living water or the source of living water because it's from God. So what's the problem? What's preventing us from receiving and experiencing all that Christ is offering to us? The prophet Jeremiah gives us insight into our problem. In Jeremiah 2.13, God says to the prophet, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah is speaking to God's people, not to unbelievers. It's God's people who have forsaken him, the living water, for broken, cracked cisterns. Cisterns are built for catching and holding rainwater or water collected from a roof. They have a limited storage space. The rainwater stored in cisterns picks up dust, soot, bird droppings, leaves, and other contaminants. Mosquitoes and insects with disease are attracted to this water sitting in the cisterns. It's disgusting to see, much less to drink. So why, why would anyone prefer this impure water supply to the pure, wholesome water 
of a fountain. Can you imagine refusing an ice-cold bottle of artesian spring water for a drink from a bucket you place under your downspout to collect the dirty, disgusting water from your rain gutters? Yet Jeremiah tells us that that's what God's people have done. And perhaps so have we. We give up the living water of Jesus for the stagnant water of the cisterns when we live with known disobedience to God or when we refuse to forgive someone who has hurt us. Maybe it's the cistern of pride or arrogance in our own accomplishments. We believe we can live life on our own. We don't need God or anyone else. Sometimes it's the cistern of unsurrendered self, as our life is focused inward on our wants and our desires. We may drink from a cracked cistern because we find the things of this world more enticing than the things of God. Or perhaps it's the cistern where we've convinced ourselves that knowing about God is the same as knowing God. When we neglect the living water God freely gives us, we automatically turn to the broken cisterns filled with the sickening, foul water because the burning thirst of our souls must be quenched. Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman and to us, You don't have to depend on broken cisterns or wells for your spiritual water supply. You can have a spring of living water right inside your heart. We don't know how fully the Samaritan woman understands all that Jesus is saying to her, but she understands enough to know that she is thirsty and she desires more than anything else to drink the living water he offers her. She also understands enough to go and tell others. She's so excited, she leaves her water pot at the well and runs back to her village. She's the first evangelist mentioned in John's gospel as she shares the good news. Come, See a man who has told me everything I ever did. One of the most wonderful experiences as a parent was being with our oldest son, John, who at the age of five prayed to receive Jesus as his Savior and Lord. Following his prayer, he turned to me with deep concern and asked, Mommy, What about Andrew? In that moment, I was touchingly reminded that this is the most natural and automatic response when we come to know Jesus. Our desire is for others to know him too. Now imagine in your minds the visible transformation in this woman as she runs back to the people in her village 
her head held high, her shoulders back, her eyes meeting theirs, her countenance completely altered. They see this and they know that something extraordinary has happened in her. So they go to see Jesus for themselves. And John tells us that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Jesus didn't tell the Samaritan woman that she had to go tell others. She just did it because the living water he gave her to drink was springing up within her and overflowing to all those around her. Like the Samaritan woman, Christ is inviting us to receive this free gift of living water, this soul-quenching grace that, like a fountain, springs up within us. When my father was a child, they had a spring on their farm that served as their only source of water. They were told not to play in it, as this was their drinking water. But, as children, they just couldn't resist the temptation. They would catch crawdads and play with them in the spring until they bored of that. Then, they would take a piece of wood and try to cover up the spring. He says they just couldn't do it. As soon as they would cover one place, the water would jump up someplace else. So then they would grab the board and move as quick as they could to try to put it on that spot and hold it down. About the time they thought they would have it, suddenly the water would leap up someplace else. And on and on the game went as they unsuccessfully tried to stop the spring. Isn't that a beautiful picture of our lives. Once we are filled with the living water Jesus is offering us, it leaps up within us. It can't be kept down as we are overflowing with his transforming love, joy, and peace that come from a satisfied soul. And this is Jesus' desire for each of us. It's the invitation of Jesus that John records in Revelation. Come, say the Spirit and the Bride. Whoever hears, echo, come. Is anyone thirsty? Come. All who will, come and drink. Drink freely of the water of life. It's also God's invitation through the prophet Isaiah. Ho, everyone that is thirsty in spirit, come to the waters. Are you obeying 
your spiritual thirst.